Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 69. Nice. Nice. <laughs> John 3 in A Dance with Dragons. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet, liesandarverdgold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. You know me also from the internet, maybe as Glass Table Girl, maybe as Arithmetric, depending on where you are. In honor of this episode, we are actually not going to talk about John 3 or A Song of Ice and Fire. This is now a Wild Stallions, a.k.a. Bill and Ted podcast. <laughs> which one of us I is mean, Bill and which one's Ted? I guess I'm Ted. Okay, so I guess I I'm know. Bill. Yeah, you're Bill. I I do <laughs> think right. we have to do something special, right? This is, our, this is the Girls Gone Canon. Do 69. Wait. No, gross. Um, like, <laughs> my wife. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we have a marriage that's kind of like Celise and Stannis. Yeah, it's only duty. Consummate. It's duty only. Duty driven. Or is it no? It's more like Lancel and Gatehouse Amy. Well, if you want to know more about what happens behind closed doors, Eliana and I will actually be together in the flesh in a few weeks. We're going to record our Patreon episode together. We are. We're very excited. As you all know, we just released in the Song of Ice and Fire Patreon episode about forgotten characters in the Winds of Winter. But, you know, we, we wanted you to remember that we are real-ass people. We have another series that we are covering, His Dark Materials, which is... I mean, it's on the horizon. Yeah, and... You know, if you're a fan of the His Dark Materials series, I, if you're not, I strongly recommend them. I am now a fan. I was not before, but I remember the Golden Compass watching the movie when I was a kid. I think I got it for Christmas. It was in one of those Walmart bins, like $5 bins or some crap, and my mom bought it for my stocking. Uh, and I, I watched it. I had no clue about any of it. I, I missed that train. I missed that train. So I had no clue about any about it. I watched the movie. I liked the movie. Now as an adult, I watched the movie, and I'm like, oh, that's a train wreck. So we're going to talk about... <laughs> The Golden Compass. We're going to go through the movie scene by scene like we do with books and uh, kind of pick it apart, talk about some of the things that happened in post-production to make it trash. It wasn't always a trash movie. Chris White's the director, actually worked very hard at this movie, you guys, and New Line Cinema swooped in and was like, we don't think it's appropriate, and they crashed a lot of the stuff out. So I've got a lot of those fun, juicy trivia facts that we're going to talk about. I think we're going to probably imbibe in... Some some drinks. Some libations. Some, some barley ale or some, some Dornish red. We're gonna go get some toke. JK, we're not that we're not that rich. <laughs> we're gonna be popping bottles when yeah. we do that, but it's gonna be know, entree. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we uh do it as a video version or what we're gonna do. We might just record it, but either way, the chemistry will be there. You will hear it. It will be palpable, and then patrons will also get probably some juicy behind the scenes action of Chloe and Eliana. Doing things over the weekend, I'm sure. But it's not sure. 69. <laughs> it's not about episode 69. Maybe it is. Maybe this is us celebrating our oh 69 episode. Yeah, belatedly. Sometimes you gotta do that. The Girls Gone Canon celebrate 69 oh God. extravaganza. Oh god. <laughs> uh, anyway. The Golden Compass. Uh, the Golden Compass. It'll be fun. Um, the new series does premiere October 4th for US fans. October 3rd for you lucky Brits. Yeah. So uh, we will go from there. We will talk then. And we will also reveal hopefully a little more of our schedule going forward for reviewing the show. We'll be finishing the first book soon and be taking a break to chat about you guys with the show. 
uh, the newly released show, and then we will see how our subtle knife filming schedule becomes. Recording schedule becomes. Yes, we're filming. We're, we're actually filming. We're the actors. Yeah, we're the actors. I'm Turns Lara, you're Will. Yeah, I'm the Malefa. You're <laughs> Mary Malone. Wow, spoilers. Yeah, so, sorry. Bringing you guys back to a different world, back to Westeros. We do have some emails, tweets, and notes I want to talk about. Uh, one of our friends, KJ's Emerald, was chatting with me and said, a thought I had listening to your episode today. The comparison of John and Eamon and their choice to take the black always compares Bran and Egg, but it also protects Sansa's rule just as much. There would be plenty of Northmen that would support a man over a woman. Hope you guys have a good Friday. Huh. I didn't think of it that way, but it does. John, if he makes a choice, you know, in taking the black at the end to protect Bran's rule, it does also protect Sansa's rule just as much. We've seen when bastards have claim enough to take land. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, especially in the books, right, where the Fagon plot is definitely going to be a thing. And you're going to see people reliving that dance of the dragons, like Civil War, male claimants versus female claimants. John's going to have seen that real life and been like, oh, that really sucked for Daenerys. Maybe I'll do yeah, this for Sansa. He, he's already seeing that, too, for Sansa. I mean, when you think about him with Stannis, uh, next next chapter especially, we'll talk about this. But, of course, that line, you know, Stannis says, I've heard enough of Lady Lannister's claim. And that's not how John sees it. That's He has never seen this place as his home, as him having ownership over it. He's wanted it, desired it, but mm-hmm. he never thought it could ever be true. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a really good point. We will likely see, I think, John and Sansa intersect in the storyline. Of course, we're going to see him intersect with Bran, probably in the kind of afterlife, not afterlife. But yeah, I mean, in Ghost. Yeah. As Ghost. (laughs) Inside of the dog. They are going to Mm. chill. Woof, woof. Well, as always, we have a lightning round to cover between John 2, which we covered last week with our guest Hannah from Game of Owns, and John 3 in A Dance with Dragons. What we missed between those chapters, Tyrion 3. Tyrion meets new members of the <laughs> RPG crew before boarding the Shy Maid, a half-maester and a duck. Switching boats disguised as Hugor Hill, he meets two more people, both thought to be dead. Gasp! Gasp! Davos 1, Davos travels to the once independent sisters, captured by Boral's men, and must find a way to complete his journey in bringing the Manderleys to the cause. That leads us into John 3. Azora High has come again, bearing his fire-lit steel for all to see, but something feels amiss. Stannis and Melisandre execute the king beyond the wall and his magical horn, and accept the wildlings into the realm at the cost of burning their gods. John reads the compendium left by Maester Aemon while his brothers question the Free Folk's assimilation. And so begins John 3 and Dance, wearing only a thin tunic. Mance is bound, has a noose around his neck, and the giant slayer has the end of his rope tied to his horse. John thinks, well, you know, they could have at least let him keep the cloak that Dalla patched for him. Oh, I see here, Chloe. And that... This explains why the wall is weeping. It's crying for Mance. John had actually given a final plea to Stannis for Mance's life, telling him, like, yo, Mance's networking connections alone and his knowledge of the land are 
pretty good reason to keep him alive, but Sanus is like, I don't give a shit about that. Within that chapter, they address like this line of the law was plain, a deserter's life was forfeit. Oh, interesting line. That's foreshadowing, right? Just I saying. think so. I mean, that's what happens. His life's forfeit. Uh, Melisandre is preaching beneath the wall as they bring out Mance. Mance? There are air quotes around these, these Mances. If you guys haven't noticed, there are definitely air quotes happening. Mance? 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 Whomst? We all must choose, she proclaimed. Man or woman, young or old, lord or peasant, our choices are the same. Her voice made John think of Anise and nutmeg and clothes. She stood at the king's side on a wooden scaffold raised above the pit. We choose light or we choose darkness. We choose good or we choose evil. We choose the true God or the false. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in this preaching, right? In this sermon that she's giving. I do think a lot of this is the very root of the story, right? That we choose light or we choose darkness. We choose good or we choose evil. But a lot of these characters' stories are rooted in that. Like Arya, who chooses the literal house of black and white and who thinks Sandor should have killed people to go get to her mom and should have saved Catelyn and he didn't. He was busy trying to keep Arya safe. It's these shades of gray in between the good and the bad. And I think it really frames this chapter with the choice the choices that John is about to make and has made, the choices John keeps having to make, and the choosing, right? The choosing that's always mm -hmm. been the hardest. I think these passages, too, show us kind of what's happening with Relorism about Danny in the East, and mm. at least the beginnings of it, and what we're going to see happen as it comes more to the West, to Westeros. I just was going to talk about how I think it's weird that John thinks of Anise and Nutmeg and Cloves. Like, is Melisandre, like, funk, fucking, I don't know, pumpkin spice? scented like her voice <laughs> that's all that's what it is Melisandre that's what the sounds is, like to me it does i was gonna say melisandre is just a big bowl of pho i was also thinking pho i was like pho or pumpkin spice or both it just like it's all in how you use it i just don't expect her to to smell comfort like her her sound to like yeah comfort i expect her to be a little she more doesn't chilly. exactly or yeah. like i don't know terrifying burnt yeah like, maybe she's utilizing her voice in a way that is supposed to seem attractive and trying to draw the flies into the light, right? Like, into the lantern. She's bringing the wild That's true. In. And it's so maybe it's because, as we like see that. later... Yeah, and, like, later on, they entice the wildlings to, what, cross the wall because they're like, hey, we have food, so maybe her voice is supposed to smell or it's, like, sound mm -hmm. like delicious food because... Yeah. People need food to live? I don't know. This is like peak Girls Gone Canon analysis. We're trying to like yeah. analyze what her voice smells like. What is that? Yeah. We're like, <laughs> but food. I do love food. Uh, so do. Mance is struggling when he sees the cage made of trees from the haunted forest above the pit of logs and kindling. And he says, mercy, this is not right. I'm not the king. They... Godry tugs on his rope to cut him off from what he's saying, and by the time they get him into the cage, he's bloodied. A dozen men put him in the cage, and Melisandre makes one more declaration. Free folk, here stands your king of lies, and here is the horn he promised would bring down the wall. And uh, there's some interesting irony going on here, when I think of it in the context of, like, Jesus' crucifixion, right? Because, like... Mm. This is a reread, and you all know, right, that this is not Mance. This is Rattleshirt in a glamour. 
And like, first of all, they trot Mance and then, first of all, they trot Mance out for everyone to see. And then Melisandre announces him in a way that kind of reminds me personally of like Jesus mockingly being called the King of the Jews. And I think the whole point, right, one of the big points of all of this is that Jesus is crucified and killed as an innocent lamb standing in for the sins of others. But, I mean, Rattleshirt, again, is standing in for man, so it becomes this perversion of all of that, because, like, we all know, Rattleshirt fucking sucks. <laughs> but he, at the very least, is innocent of what he's being executed for, which is being the king beyond the wall. And he's being sacrificed instead of man, so it mirrors, yet perverts, the whole idea of that sacrifice. Yeah, and there's the obvious Jesus and John imagery that we sure. have like joked about lightly, and there's some other stuff from Matthew I'm going to talk about later. But it, there's a lot of heavy, heavy just like themes that you find in Christianity that are replayed here with a lot of this stuff in sacrifice. And I love that George has reached into not just that, but other religions as well that regard sacrifice, and he does play with that, especially when it involves the old gods and R'hllor. I really like that a lot. I don't know. It's something I'm noticing more. So I was talking about this chapter with my partner, and I don't remember if it's brought up in Mel's chapter or not, but does Rattleshirt know that he's glamoured as Mance right now and that everyone sees him as Mance? I think so. Oh, maybe not, though. Because I'm not no, sure. No, I think so. No, he does, because he's like, he like is all like grinning at John about it. Oh, yeah, that's true. I guess he wouldn't grin at John like that. If, Unknowingly. Yeah, if he didn't know. Because that would be like a weird, a weird flex. Yeah. Of being and like, I, I, yeah. It's more like I believe Melisandre probably lied to him about what his role would be. I believe that for sure. Uh, I, I just think, I, I just don't remember if he knows he's glamoured or not. But anyway, the horn has golden runes and bands carved into it of the first men. Uh, Egret had told John that Mance had never found it, but Mance himself confirmed just a few chapters ago. He doesn't tell everyone in his party everything. How likely do you think at this point this is the horn of winter? I don't think it is. No. A lot of people liken it, right, to the dragon binder horn that they mm -hmm. say that the imagery is actually incredibly similar. Yeah, yeah, it is, especially with the runes. Dragonbiter has the silver runes. Um, uh, it, it's interesting because they're burning a false king because it's not Mance, it's Rattleshirt. And they're also probably burning a false horn of winter. Mm, in I didn't think of that Stan together. Yeah, Stannis is like the king of lies wow. here. Not, not, not Mance. Stannis is the king of lies here. Yeah. Wow. Right? It's like everything she's saying. And like that's the thing is she knows what she's doing. So at this point, she's just kind of choosing, like, to be ignorant. But she doesn't know, right, that he isn't Azora High, I guess. Yeah. But she's, like, using cheat codes to make sure he is. Yeah. And that's silly to me because it's like, Melisandre, you're lying to yourself. Which is probably the saddest kind of lie that someone can do. Yeah. And, you know, if it's one thing that John has learned from Mance... Because Mance had told him, Egret said Mance never found it, but Mance is like, oh yeah, well, I don't tell everyone, especially Egret. I'm not going to tell Egret everything, John. And John has become just like that. He's exacting that attitude, right? Mm. He does learn a lot of leadership ideas and, and tactics from Mance, so that's definitely yeah. true. 
And along with that, it's kind of like Ned, right? Yeah. Because Ned definitely didn't tell everyone everything, especially when it came to John. And so we get this line again about the horn. And Joraman blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. So a thousand captives then watch this horn being lifted, and they are ragged and half-starved. And John thinks that they neither look wild nor free. They look hungry, frightened, and numb. Yeah, they don't care at this point. They just want, like, food and a nap. They'll probably do whatever you want them to do once you feed them. You know, you don't have to do your goth light show at this point. (sighs) The Horn of Joraman, Melisandre said. No, call it the Horn of Darkness. If the wall falls, night falls as well. The long night that never ends, it must not happen, will not happen. The Lord of Light has seen his children in their peril and sent a champion to them, Azor Ahai Reborn. She swept a hand towards Stannis, and the great ruby at her throat pulsed with light. He is stone, and she is flame. The king's eyes were blue bruises, sunk deep in a hollow face. He wore gray plate, a fur-trimmed cloak of cloth and gold flowing from his broad shoulders. His breastplate had a flaming heart inlaid above his own. Girding his brows was a red gold crown with points like twisting flames. I love that description. Mm -hmm. It's a very scary description to think about. Stannis knows how to cosplay. (laughs) Oh my god. He cuts a grievous figure. I mean, that's a a crazy look he's wearing there. It is a crazy look. I I like how we... I don't think people talk about what Stannis wears as much, but it's in contrast to a few chapters ago where John thinks, what, Stannis is garbed like a Night's Watchman, but here he's all out mm-hmm. in his, like, Baratheon colors. His hot coacher came Oh my up. god. <laughs> With the crown, it's yeah. all, like, points, like, twisting flames, and his breastplate has his big flames all over it, and, I don't know, uh... Fashion goes Week, on 298. Fashion AC. Week. <laughs> Val stands with them. She's made royal and wearing a crown as well, which reminds me a lot of Daenerys's floppy ears mm. because Val obviously does not want to be wearing a crown. <laughs> she must be like, okay, guys, here's the bronze circlet. It's on my head. Is everyone happy? She's like, why the fuck do people want this? <laughs> uh, Lady Melisandre wore no crown, but every man there knew that she was Stannis Baratheon's real queen not the homely woman he had left to shiver at Eastwatch by the sea. Hmm. Hmm. John doesn't even know what Selyse looks like. <laughs> he right. had never seen her in real life. All of John, not yet though. All of John's interiority about who looks like royalty and who doesn't, though, does remind me of the first time John saw Jamie Lannister in his first few. A Game of Thrones chapters where he's like, now that's what a king looks like. And of course, like, we know that back then, if we examined it in the context of there used to be an intention on George's part to make Jamie king based on the 1993 letter, it really, I think, shows us a little, little bit about perception and power and leadership and station. Yeah, and within the same few passages, John has been like, these people are starving and they're humans. Who cares about all this? But at the same time, he still has that little bit of ingrained culture and norms in him of these people are ugly and weird. They aren't really the queen or king. And you even look at it when regarding Jano Slint, right? Mm. He had to have that political prowess to think, well, if I don't kill this guy, he's going to kill me. And he's regarding it now, even though it's a little superficial. Um, it's expected 
I guess. It's it's just like all those little comments that we get here and there of Quentin thinking of roaches as the people and Sansa in the window being like, these people look like ants. Yeah. John, by thinking that, it shows that he, in a way, is still a little bit living in the songs. Oh, absolutely. He needs to kill the boy. Yeah, but not the, that boy. <laughs> not Gilly's well, boy. Well, too late. Rip. Oh, I should just let that boy go now, but we can't. We can't. For Gilly's sake. She's gotta hold on hope. She's gotta hold on hope. Oh my god. The gossip around the camp is that Stannis doesn't intend to bring Selyse and Shireen back into the fold until the night fort is done. And John's like, well, that's a pretty sad fucking place for them to live. They seem like this weird, like, <laughs> sad, like, haunted house family. Yeah, they live on fucking Dragonstone. Yeah. Poor Shireen. She just wants to be a normal little girl. Her parents are like, we're gonna move to these shitty places. Free folk, cried Melisandre, behold the fate of those who choose the darkness. The horned Jorman burst into flame. It went up with a whoosh, as swirling tongues of green and yellow fire leapt up, crackling all along its length. Uh, a groan goes out against the free folk as the horn blazes, and the runes are shining in the air, and Mance, Mance? claws Mance claws at his noose from his cage and he begins to scream and he denies his people and his kingship and he shrieks for mercy and he starts laughing hysterically at the end. Uh, very Lady Stoneheart also mm. there to me. John watched unblinking. He did not appear squeamish before his brothers. That brings me right back to Bran uh, in A Game of Thrones. And don't look away. Father will know if you do. Oh. That is a yeah. good comparison. I I mean we know in a moment that John's watching for a different reason, but um, it, the way they describe it, it reminds me again of Miri Mazdor being burned. Right at first, she's like singing her song to give her strength, and then it just turns into screams. John ordered two hundred men to stand out during all of this, mounted on horse with spears, their hoods up. Mostly to hide the fact that they're like old men or green men, mm. uh, and most too young or old to do real damage. And either way, John wants the free folk to fear the watch, though, as they begin their new lives in the kingdom in the north. Yeah, it's kind of a strategic move on John's part because there's this aspect of where through this, what he's doing is he's depersonalizing, dehumanizing the Night's Watch, because as John. He doesn't think this explicitly, right? But as we see in the story, John comes to understand and know the free folk as people, some as individuals, and because of that, he's come to empathize with them more and fear them less, which is part of why he's like, yeah, we should let the free folk through the wall. And that in, in and of itself is a strategy as well, right? Playing into empathy. But here he's doing the opposite. He's using that depersonalization of the Night's Watch to make them seem like a different entity, a very cultural, like a sociocultural other, as opposed to the ice demons on the other side of the wall. <laughs> and that the free folk would then feel more fear from, right? But unfortunately, that also makes it easier to hate something that is standing as an other to them. And I think that this idea of that depersonalization and that inability to know others as that individual and really see them, I think, is going to 
end up being a part of the later parts of A Song of Ice and Fire with other yeah. cultures coming to Westeros, like the Insullied and the Dothraki. I think it's a big struggle for the Insullied. They are seen very often, right, as as this big conglomerate, personless group, and they've been trained to be that, but... I mean, they yeah. all had individual hopes and wants and fears, too. Yeah, and that's the thing, is you're trying to integrate and assimilate these people into one people, and they don't get to keep who they are. They don't get to keep the peace of them. They're being told to yes. throw away their religion and take up this new religion. And it's disgusting because John knows it's bad to do this to them. And, but he also thinks that this is the only way they will do it. And the only way they will come and the only way to get them through the wall. And he thinks the only way for them to live in Westeros and behave properly is for him to set up a police state in the North watching them. Yeah. With, with the, the night's watch, but Mm-hmm. What John needs is Leslie Nope. Yes. Come back to that in a bit. Not in depth. It's still gonna just be <laughs> very quick, but the fire <laughs> then reaches Mance, who is now sobbing and begging, and then John remembers a song. Brothers of oh brothers, my days here are done. The Dornish months taken my life. But what does it matter for all men must die? And I've tasted the Dornish man's wife. Oh my god. My wife is so Can talented. I, I think so. You're so talented. Thank Voice you. Voice acting and singing at the same time. <laughs> And patrons can get the full track for $75 a month. No, you can't. Um, <laughs> we don't I offer mean, this. Uh, so I've come back to uh, the Dornishman's wife after we've talked about it and not really understanding it. I've uh, talked it through and consulted with some friends. I've reread some Theon chapters. Hmm. Yeah, and after some discussion and some Theon chapters in the, the poor Queenton household, uh, I have read... So you have the fir- the one verse, and the verses, it's interesting because all these verses kind of change through the books, right? You get new lyrics as we go through the books, and uh, you get, for example, Mance changing the words. Like, the first verse that he changes, instead of, The Dornishman's wife was as fair as the sun, and her kisses were warmer than spring. But the Dornishman's blade was made of black steel, and its kiss was a terrible thing. And it reminds me of the passage where we read, he was still waiting for his porridge when Ramsay swept into the hall with his bastards boys, shouting for music. Abel rubbed the sleep from his eyes, took up his lute, and launched into the Dornishman's wife whilst one of the washerwomen beat time on her drum. The singer changed the words, though. Instead of tasting a Dornishman's wife, he sang of tasting a Northman's daughter. So, hmm. to continue this exploration, Eliana, hmm. I know you're so intrigued, and I can tell, so I'm going to tell you more. Uh... I am intrigued. This song, this song is actually foretelling Mance's fate. So we'll move on to the song, too. The Dornishman's wife would sing as she bathed in a voice that was sweet as a peach. But the Dornishman's blade had a song of its own and a bite sharp and cold as a leech. Hmm. So it brings me to Theon, who foretold Mance's fate as well. When Theon said to Abel, Ramsay will use your women as his prey. He'll hunt them down, rape them, feed their corpses to his dogs. If they lead a good chase, he may name his next litter of bitches after them. You he'll flay. Him and Skinner and Damon dance for me. They'll make a game of it, and you'll be begging them to kill you. You swore you would not let me fall into his hands again. I have your word on that. So in the letter we get eventually, in the pink letter, we also kind of hear that, oh, he has Mance in a cage. 
It wouldn't be unlikely that the pink letter has that fact straight. I think Stannis is probably not true in that letter. He doesn't have Stannis, but I think as we explore that letter, we'll probably come back to some of this, that Mance is probably likely he does have Vance. And then there's the final verse I'm going to talk about, which is, as he lay on the ground with the darkness around and the taste of his blood on his tongue, his brothers knelt by him and prayed him a prayer, and he smiled and he laughed and he sung. Brothers, oh brothers, my days here are done. The Dornishman's taken my life. But what does it matter? For all men must die, and I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. Um, where Mance is at the last time we see him or hear from him before the pink letter, Roos asks for the singer to come sing them something, and he bows and comes forward and sits cross-legged on top of the high table. Uh, and he starts playing a sad, soft song Theon doesn't recognize, which is likely to be Jenny's song, in my opinion. And Sir Hostine, Sir Aenys, and the other Freys go off to lead their horses from the hall. So the Boltons have Mance right in front of them right now. And, of course, the first time we meet Mance, he's singing to himself and to John on his lute. What does it matter? For all men must die, the king beyond the wall said lightly. And I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. Yeah, I think... In the context of it being what happens to Mance, I think that really works because, you know, last time when we had talked about this song, we talked about it as, like, being about the seasons. But if you think about it mm -hmm. as the seasons of, like, one's life, whoa, different song. But... Oh, I was thinking seasons oh. of my love, my bad. Oh, God Close enough. It, see? God damn it. Anyways, so if you think about it as the seasons of like Mance's life, maybe you know he's he's had his like youth and his summer. Now he's in the spring. He's nearing the winter, literally, of his life, etc. And I mean, the next book is allegedly the winds of winter. And <laughs> if all of this is happening to Mance, like that makes sense, right? If if the Dornishman somehow is. And his knife is winter, etc. Especially with like being Ramsay Snow, and yeah, I think that's really interesting, and that really provides more context than to the brothers. Oh, brothers, my days here done. Because as we're reminded in this chapter, Mance was a brother of the Watch. Wow. Yeah, and <sighs> Ramsay has Mance now, so I'm sure Ramsay has inkled information out of Mance. I think that's pretty much what we should take from that, but. We'll come back to that in just a little bit in a few chapters, handful of chapters here. For sure. But until then, Val, probably still confusedly wearing the circlet, watches from the platform. And John thinks she looks as if she were carved of salt. She doesn't look away or cry. Some very Lot's wife in Sodom and Gomorrah vibes here. And it makes John think of what Egret would have done. The woman of the strong ones. He found himself thinking about Sam and Maester Aemon, about Gilly and the babe. She will curse me with her dying breath, but I saw no other way. <sighs> well, Egret would have watched too. <laughs> That's the point, <laughs> I guess. John hears reports of storms from Eastwatch on the Narrow Sea and hopes that they're safe. And he dreamed the night before of Sam drowning and of Egret dying with his arrow in her, even though he knows it wasn't in real life. And then Gilly wept tears of blood. It's all very metal. Yes, very metal dream, and it reminds me of Eddard 13 in A Game of Thrones. Promise me, Ned, Lyanna's statue whispered. She wore a garland of pale blue roses, and her eyes wept blood. Damn. Same kind of concept, yeah. same amount of guilt. Uh, Lyanna and Ashara are kind of the big characters used for guilt 
in this book, right? Like anytime anyone is sad or feels guilty, it's probably about them. And they should feel guilty, to be fair. Everyone should feel guilty, except like John. No, he should too, actually. So they should all just feel guilty. But Yeah, is her name Gilly because she makes him feel guilty? No. Because he should, yep. Mm-mm. Yep. I'm, I can't do that. Yep. Can't agree. Yes. <sighs> John is sick of watching Nance on the fire, and then he commands his men, Now. Ulmer of the Kingswood shoots an arrow, as do several others, straight into Mance. Mance? So, where the arrows hit Mance? Does it parallel where John is stabbed? Oh. Because one arrow hits him in the chest, one in the gut, and one in the throat. Granted, the the one that the dagger that hits John in the throat, right, it doesn't quite hit him, it like comes across it but there are theories that it was like a very important artery and that Mm. causes john to leave to lose blood faster and there's a fourth arrow it doesn't reach mance it hits the bars around it and we do of course have that iconic line as everyone remembers john never felt the fourth knife that probably means that he did there was a fourth knife but he didn't feel it in the same way that the last arrow doesn't quite make it thoughts that's a really interesting parallel i deem it true (laughs) thank you it's canon. Just Holy like shit, Gillian I never Guilty? That. No, that's not canon and you're fired. But this is, you're rehired for this one. Wow. You have a big career ahead of you. <laughs> it's a rocky career. Uh, it's a really sad scene. Uh, they mm-hmm. just had to kill the king in front of them. And there's this line that I really love for a couple reasons. Uh, a woman's sobs echoed off the wall as the wildling king slid bonelessly to the floor of his cage, wreathed in fire. It's so clever when you come back to it. Bonelessly. Because, you know, rattle shirt, the yeah. Lord of Bones. Yeah. No bones. It also quickly reminds me of um, Stannis' vision. Mm. A king, the crown of fire, wreathed in Blames. flames. But I don't think it's this one. But no. the bonelessly is interesting, though. It, it's definitely that nudge. Yeah, and, like, I see you, George. I see you, and... It reminds me of something called No Bones, which was the answer to free hug signs at a convention I went to. And let me explain it to you without having to physically demonstrate. I'll have to physically demonstrate when I visit you because it's so much better. But people would shove a sign in your face that said free hugs. And I don't want to give a free hug. So I would say, okay, sure. And act like I was going to give a free hug. And then like, as soon as they put their arms around you, you just, you just go limp and you fall to the ground and you yell, No Bones. <laughs> I don't remember that happening. That is a that is an that innovation a, that came later. No, I don't know if that innovation ever took off, but no. it took off for my group in OhioCon 2014. So, so yeah, I'm an icon. Yep, I think so. Well, now you all know it's when you go to conventions and people are all like free hugs, just no bones them. Yeah. So John softly murmurs as Mance dies. Mance dies. Mance? No, his watch is done. Stannis watches, scowling, and John refuses to meet his eyes. Melisandre returns to giving a sermon to the wildlings about the Lord of Light, how he created fire, and how Stannis is their true king. Free folk, your false gods cannot help you. Your false horn did not save you. Your false king brought you only death, despair, defeat. But here stands the true king. Behold his glory! 
<laughs> Stannis Baratheon drew Lightbringer. The sword glowed red and yellow and orange, alive with light. John had seen the show before. Not like this. Never before like this. Lightbringer was the sun made steel. When Stannis raised his blade above his head, men had to turn their heads or cover their eyes. Horses shied and one threw his rider. The blaze in the fire pit seemed to shrink before his storm of light, like a small dog cowering before a larger one. The wall itself turned red and pink and orange as waves of color danced across the ice. Is this the power of King's blood? That's an intense passage. Holy crap. It is an intense passage. I love the part, the the pit seemed to shrink before this storm of light. Yeah. Because, you know, Stormlands. Oh, I was thinking a storm of swords. Oh, but that also is true. That's right. He's he's the storm lord. Yeah, right. Mel's smoke and mirrors light show. It turns out is like super high quality. <gasps> this is where the budget went. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just watched Spider Man oh. Far From Home last night. It was really good, by the way. But it, it's basically this is Mysterio level of illusionary. Uh, the people shying in fear from it, the blaze of fire, the wall turning colors. Is this the power of King's blood? Yes. That was intense. That's an intense... Uh, it, it's crazy to think if that is, then what can real King's blood do? In my opinion, it's still the same. Yeah, uh, it's still smoke and mirrors, but really good illusion, Mysterio. Ten yeah. <laughs> Mysterio and Alessandra, that's... The ship. Is it, I guess so. It's, or are they one and the same? A little of both. Stannis tells them that they can bend a knee and receive food, land, and justice, or they can go and die. He commands <laughs> them to open the gates, and Clayton sucks. More like Sir Clayton sucks. He sucks. And Corliss Penny return the bellow. Wonder if there's something here with all the open the gates. King's Landing. I don't know. Oh. The gates open, and John has Ed open the iron gates as well, and Melisandre tells them to come to the light or run back to the darkness, and below her is a pit full of fire. If you would eat, come to me, John thought. If you would not freeze or starve, submit. This line reminds me of, uh, there's this passage from Matthew 25, 34 to 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, my father has blessed you. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me into your home. I needed clothes and you gave me something to wear. I was sick and you took care of me. Kind of feels like Stannis has a bit of a god complex here without doing the godly things. Yeah, he does. Because I think the whole point is you're supposed to give them something to eat, etc. Regardless. Like, isn't that... What yeah. happens in this passage, right? Because the king is like, yes. I needed something. The king needed something. And the king is the one who received food when they were hungry and thirsty, right? That's what's yeah. happening in there. Yes. If I remember that context. So, <sighs> Stannis. Which he just did. That's true. Stannis so, did need a home. And the Night's Watch was like, okay, I guess you can stay here. Against our better judgment. <laughs> yeah, they're like, uh, can you go? Like, we're, we're being really hospitable. Please, please be nice to us. And then he's like... But Stannis had to lick the bull. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to lock you all in a room and you're going to pick someone. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened at the end of last book. And then he's like, I don't like this outcome, but damn it. Now I have to live with this. 
It's a slow go at first, but once the free folks see that it's not a trap, they begin to stream through. Except, like, it is. Yes. It's just their choice, so they have to go into this trap because the other side's a trap, too. Like, it's not freedom. This isn't freedom. And, like, just to talk about the good show, Game of Thrones. Oh, my God. Uh, this is something I would have loved to see them actually do. It has the yeah. same power. I think they tried to kind of foist on us with that controversial season eight Danny scene. Like, not as much lazy Nazi symbolism they put behind it, but I just don't think we're supposed to see this scene and feel warm and good inside, no pun intended. We're supposed to be like, oh my God, yikes. Like, there's huge ass fires everywhere. Stannis is making them burn their gods to get salvation. This isn't like walking into a peace protest or rally. Like, everybody's walking in and they're afraid, and the heat of the fire is so strong. Uh, it's kind of crazy. It feels, with the exception of the part where the sword is pretty cool, yeah. it feels hellish yes. rather than, like, salvation. Yeah. It's like, then they pass through and the queensmen hand them each a weirwood branch covered with its red leaves that they're gonna, like, go burn to offer to the new gods that they're <laughs> accepting. It's like, dog. <laughs> John, like, sees a few wildlings who are wary of the flames as they approach because they're blistering hot. He can, like, feel it from where he's standing, which isn't as close as they're gonna go. Yeah. Like, this is not your time to, like, cool-ass bonfire. Yeah, this is not, like, your Sunday church visit. Uh, he's listening to children cry, and some of the free folk he sees head back to the woods. He watches a mother with two children holding her hands go into the wood, and she's looking back the whole time to make sure no one's following them. She breaks into a run as soon as she gets to the edge of the forest. And that makes me so sad because they're walking straight into their doom. But she couldn't trust that they'd be safe there. Yeah. But, I mean, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, another not... man does... There, there's, a, there's a free folk member that takes a branch and he uses it as a weapon as soon as he gets inside. And the Queen's men come down on him with spears and kill him. And, like, obviously, no, he shouldn't have been using it as a spear to fight these people. But I mean, also, you knew it was going to happen at some point. He, I mean. Yeah, he's basically unarmed. Yeah. You know, he has a branch. Yeah, exactly. It's, again, police state being instituted. Um, but Corliss throws him in the fire afterwards so that he doesn't come back to life. But that alone, it's like, it's a sad scene. They're literally being forced to shed their religions and their cultures and their beliefs. Yeah. Just so that they can live another day. And it. As, as people in our very core of humanity, those are the things that we utilize to kind of define us, right? Like, we live our lives by them, and they kind of do structure some of the things we do, some of the hobbies we pursue, and some of the things we like. I mean, my life is pretty structured, unfortunately, about this in our podcast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this like, is it. This is our life this is now. It. But I mean... Episode 69. <laughs> they have traditions and different things that are just being broken and ripped apart and burnt. And what's the reason to live when you don't have the things that you lived for? Uh, John's thinking about how it's too cold for this mummer show this entire time and that he warned Stannis they'll love you more if you let them keep their pride but Stannis didn't listen he wanted their swords and not their kisses and that fear versus love mentality of rulership comes in most here because in the end Stannis wants to wage war on this kingdom to conquer it and he doesn't care about the consequences of the war yeah, I, like in the context of everything you're saying, I think the line that stands out to me so much that you quoted earlier was John thinking like, if you would eat, come to me, John thought, if you would not freeze or starve, submit. And it's all the things like you were saying, like of what people are being asked to give up because John's thinking that Stannis is getting what like Stannis, I think, 
Stannis thinks he wants this. He thinks that he's presenting a choice to the wildlings and that someone is finally choosing him, uh-huh. right? But the phrasing of everything, if you would eat, come to me. If you would not, if you would not freeze or starve, submit. That's coercion, right? Like, these people don't have... That's not a real choice. And I think, like you said, this is something that wasn't conveyed well or that they tried to maybe herald to in Season 8 because I think, as people have pointed out, there's a lot of parallels between Stannis and Daenerys. But, like, John thought earlier in this chapter, none of these people look wild or free anymore and they're being forced to give up. Like, they're being forced to give up their religion. They're being forced to give up their culture. That's not just like i don't know giving up a small thing right like that's they're being put into camps they're being put into camps of people that some of them are dying because they don't have the right protein nutrients and things to sustain them and it's cold and it's winter and they're just left in like pens like pigs i mean yeah and the choices between that or the wilderness where there isn't anything that's not freedom yeah. That Stannis is giving them the forced stripping of a culture in exchange for the promise of just literally survival of the basics. That's violence. And they're being raped in pushed into the system. They're being pushed into violence because they're being forced then to go to war. Boys as young as 12, anyone that can hold a spear is going to be forced to go to war, whether it's against Stannis' enemies or whether the Watch makes them. You're being saved and utilized to push the war. Against the others is one thing because it's inevitable. Right? Like, that's right. going to happen. And that's a more worthwhile cause than you're going to fight Stannis' enemies. Yes. Yes. And I was talking about this chapter again, like, with my partner and about how what Stannis is doing here is violence. Because I think you see a lot of people talk about Stannis coming to the wall as being his turning point towards good. Mm-hmm. And yes, there is a righteousness in choosing to defend the wall, but what he's doing here, this is not a good. No, it's bad. This is not righteous. This is kind of close to ethnic cleansing. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. No, you should. Right? By forcing people to give up their culture and their religion. And I feel strongly about this because I come from a culture that has lost a lot of what we had because people forced us to convert to christianity and what have we lost there's so there's so much that people have lost there's so much richness that is gone that i don't even know what was in our history because someone forced them all to convert and yeah again i was talking we were talking about what is violence and how he has read something that the threat of violence in and of itself and this again coercion is violence like it's uh, the example that he used that he had read is, you know, Genghis Khan coming to a city and saying, submit or die, mm. right? Like, that's not a real choice. No, that's it's not. That's violence. Well, the, that's the where those parallels are with Danny, right? Like, kneel or I'll burn you. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's something that um, Stannis, to me, has a long way to go before. I understand people seem as righteous, but this is not. No, this is not righteous. And I actually think... Similar to what you're saying, I don't think that Wins is the heel turn where Stannis is being good and righteous and just or anything. He's not. In the last couple chapters, you and I alone have talked about, like, wow, he's kind of a dick. Like, he's being a major dick. Like, in Storm, yes, he shows up all, like, I'm here and I'm righteous. But Dance is really fulfilling that second half and showing you, like, this isn't righteous. This is him doing it for his own cause. And he doesn't care about these consequences, whether they're intended or unintended. 
and they are intended. I mean, he wants them to submit to him and be his. He sees them as a number. Yeah, he does. And there's not even a promise of, like, what? On the other end, you know, you convert to R'hllor and you go to heaven or something? No. That That's not even on the other end of the promise of all of this, no. right? So it's just like, you have to do this because... No chance, no choice. R'hllor fucking said so, yeah. In a bad way. Yeah. Horse and Satin are supposed to lead the wildlings through the wall with torches to treasures awaiting new free folk of the realm. The treasures they're being offered. So this is what the wildlings are being offered after burning everything they stand for in their gods. And, you know, no big deal. Hot onion soup with bread and sausage, which I'm going to be honest, that does sound delicious right now. It sounds really good. Clothing, clean straw piles for sleeping on, and fires to keep them warm. But John thinks, what happens when Tormund attacks the wall? Will the new free folk remain loyal then? Before they chose Mance, will they stay loyal to Stannis, or is Tormund going to be their new king? Bowen rides alongside John and says he's never thought he'd see this day. He's missing part of his ear, and he's lost weight due to a head wound from the Bridge of Skulls against the Free Folk. He asks, we bled to stop the wildlings at the gorge. Good men were slain there, friends and brothers. For what? Alistair pipes in, saying the realm will curse them, and that all honest men in Westeros will spit at the mention of the Night's Watch. Yeah, I understand intellectually what this means for, like, Bowen and Alistair and why this leads to them offing John. I think that they're wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because, I mean, John's going against everything that they were meant to do, but viscerally, I still struggle to, like, to really get behind them. I do think it's worth remembering, though, that Alistair and Bowen never faced the Whites or the Others. Unlike a lot of the other members of the Night's Watch, it seems like many who have either encountered the Others or truly understand what that means are less concerned by letting the Free Folk through. But all of the guys who uh, actually faced the whites and the others were kind of slaughtered when, you know, they faced the whites or the others, so. Yeah, and it is that difference that highlights who they are as men and who John is, right? Like, by not facing that, they have these frivolous concerns, like, what will the realm think of this penal colony that it turns out, hey, the realm doesn't already highly think well of them. Yeah. Uh, Thorn thinks here, what will they think of us? Well, they already don't think of you, Thorn. I don't think of you at all. It's yeah. almost like telling these older men that, you know, are so wrapped up in the system that guess what? They're not coming for us. They never were. Yeah. Your good deeds here aren't going to lead you to anything like joyous land wise. You know, like you're not going to be noticed by the king for your valor during this. Yeah. They sent you here to forget about you. Yeah. They sent you here so you could do work, die against the, these ice zombies that it turns out people did know about one time, but they hushed it up and put it behind a wall, and there you go. Now you have to defend the realm, because your life is worth, worth bullshit. Like, that's pretty much what it is. So it's like they won't let go of these, you know, these crazy ambitions they had before, and they're bored little housewives on the wall, so... Yeah, and I think there's a part of it of, like you said, they're like, what will the king think? Because I think they are still hoping someone's going to help them. But I this comes back to what John was discussing with Sam last chapter. He's like, ah, they still aren't going to fucking like us or help us, yeah. so what's the fucking point? Yeah. What's the point of this letter? John had toyed with giving Greyguard to Alistair after killing Janos, because Thorn had been a bit more behaved since that beheading. But the malice is obviously still there. He wants to keep him close. Yeah, I don't know if there's really a good choice for John here, right? Because at the same time, John is kind of doing the opposite of what I think was quite a wise decision on JR's part. JR, I think, was pretty fucking smart in parting Alistair and mm -hmm. John because he saw 
the animosity between the two. But I also understand that, you know, there's that line of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So I don't know. John, keep Alistair at a medium distance. (laughs) He thinks that Alistair is actually more dangerous than Slint, and so instead sent a different steward to Greyguard, hoping that the new garrisons are going to be able to help the watch. But John knows that they have no rangers, and there are still too few men. He needs to send men out, but, like, he's Wonders if I send them out, are they going to come back again? Yeah. The going is slow, as most wildlings are old, ill, or wounded. And when the last knee bends, night has fallen and the fires are low. The king's shadow is now normal again. Because he's just a man, after all. He is. I kind of almost wonder, Is this is reading too much into it. The, you know, earlier, when it was like bright outside and light, his shadow's enormous and this fire's enormous but now that it's night maybe like the long night mm. his fire is smaller and the shadow and thus power is smaller too mm. okay, okay i don't know metaphors it's not really i think really a thing but it could be a metaphor later on no i definitely think it is i mean that's kind of why i added he is just a man you know yeah he's uh not well, azora high after all he's just a poor boy you know, throughout all this, John keeps seeing his breath in this chapter, mm. and it keeps getting colder and colder every single time he talks about it. And you can almost feel your own nostrils freeze with him, right? Mm. The some of you may not understand that, I guess, now that I say it out loud. Wow. Uh. That's weird. Some people don't have snow where they live, but... That's true. If you've never felt the snow or been in the cold... Uh, if you go outside, your nostrils can freeze, and then when you go inside again, yeah. you defrost. They defrost too, and it's awful. Yeah, the snow is cool for all of like I don't know, five minutes. Oh, I love it, or less. I love it. What? Yeah. I'm like, it's alright for a moment. Then you have to actually deal with it. Then I'm like, fuck this shit. Ugh, I love it. You have to like shovel it, and then it like gets in the way, and then how are you gonna do all the things? Ugh. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I hate the cold. No, no. Uh, there's two score of captives that are left by the stockade, and four of them are giants, loped shoulders, legs as large as tree trunks, huge splayed feet, and they were going to pass through the wall, but one refused to leave his mammoth, so they stayed. Oh. Yeah, uh, it, it just makes me think of the last springs to mind here in a lot of ways. This is a whole people who are being forced to assimilate, and especially the smaller subset of this whole people, the giants who have already seen everyone die. Yeah. Oh, this is the end. This They're is the, the last. Real last. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, everyone in the stockades, right? They're dead and dying. And some of the people who are left out there, they're kin and companions who don't want to abandon each other, even for the promise of, like, just some yeah. food. They'd rather, I guess, starve. And some are too cold even to feel. And Stannis just tells them, all right, you're free to leave and tell your people acting like they're going to go be fucking missionaries or something. Tell your people what happened here at the wall with the true king of Westeros and that he will not let them attack his wall. I was just like, again, some of these people are, are now literally unable to make it. The giants, once more, last of them. And Stannis refuses them aid because, what, they don't convert or they're unable to? Like, again, again, this is violence. It is erasure. And it's the attempted eradication of a culture. Yeah. 
it's worse to think about the families. I mean, you think about this happening in real life in other places, and the families that die because yes. someone is sick or hurt and they can't move and they don't want to leave them and don't want to live in this world without that because this world is scary and they have nothing now in this world because it's all been taken away from them. Uh, it's people that would rather choose death than to leave their family and their culture, yeah. and it's very sad. Uh, 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 uh. Fuck off, Stannis. I'm mad at you right now. I like, I'll like him again eventually, maybe yeah. if he says something good and righteous, but like this chapter really does bum me out. It's dark times ahead. Yeah, I mean, he could offer some aid to them, right? And it's like, but... it's that weird political line of he has no rights at the wall to say what the wall does. However, this is him settling True. Land in his quote unquote kingdom. And John refused Winterfell, so John has no say over Winterfell. So now Stannis has decided to move ahead and forge ahead with his plans. He's not going to wait to figure it out. And he has say over what happens in the North, he decided. So uh, it, it's hard because we're looking at this as Northern loyalists, obviously, because we are. But <laughs> it's hard to like look at this and be like, uh, like I, I, it's not right for Stannis, really, in my opinion, still to mess with the North, even though we have no claim over it in this conversation. I think what's also funny is that here, you know, in the outline, as you pointed out, like, Stannis is calling it his wall. It's like, that's not how the wall works. Literally not how the wall works. <laughs> as they've tried to explain to him many times. They're like, no, we're not supposed to yeah. take part. <laughs> This yeah. passage, I'm going to make you read, it's a Melisandre passage, uh, really sets the scene for all of this. Really unsettling. Gives me the heebie-jeebies. Mm -hmm, interesting. One realm, one god, one king, cried Lady Melisandre. The queen's men took up the cry, beating the butts of their spears against their shields. One realm, one god, one king. Stannis, Stannis, one realm, one god, one king. Val did not join the chant, he saw, nor did the brothers of the Night's Watch. Not exactly the happiest <laughs> PR stop of the trip, you know? Yeah. <laughs> At least I, 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 I'm glad that the brothers of the Night's Watch understand the PR of all this. They're like, no, this is literally not what we do. <laughs> Again, Stannis. Like, if you want to know what really was the uh, the the straw that broke the camel's back or the, the knife that killed the Jon Snow. Oh, wow. It really probably is the Stannis stuff because this is like, it's like when you invite friends over and you think they're cool, but then they throw and you're like, I'm going to have some people over, but then they throw a big party. Like in Mean Girls, Katie Heron, and they like turn her whole mm. house into a huge, crazy party. Like, that's what John did. He's like, yeah, you can come over. You can invite a couple people, man. And then Stannis invites all the free folk through the wall and lights everything on fire. <laughs> That's actually what he does. That's literally what That's just happened. That's literally what he does. And John was like to his family, he's like, look, like they're only going to stay for a little bit and they're not going to throw any crazy ragers, but here they are burning people. Like he just burnt someone. Yeah. It, just because what? He waved a stick at people? Well, not just that. No, they killed him and burnt him. But I'm saying, like, man, yeah. quote unquote, like, Both that's of the them. biggest one. That's true. Both of them did that, I guess. But the big the, the big thing here is, like, that. this is what Stannis does. He goes place and he lights people on fire. Like, he came to the north and that's what he did here, too. I wonder if, like, Mance saw what Jon did with Jano Slint, who, I guess, somewhat threatened Jon's power, right? Yeah. Or he did. And I guess Stannis sees Mance as a threat to his power and is like, that was a good idea, let's do that. But with <laughs> fire. It's true, though, because without killing Mance, like, they'll never follow anyone else. 
Mm. I mean, not to play devil's advocate there. Sorry, but yeah. I know we're anti-Stannis episode. This is yeah, episode. but I mean, I mean, right. like. John did think he's like without Mance the coalition falls apart but yeah I don't know that I agree with Stannis killing Mance in that way it's more just uh I get it it, he didn't have to do all the other shit too of like we did we killed your king yeah now give up your culture (laughs) so the last wildlings go through the trees the giants are the last to go and only the dead remain the king's honor guard falls in around Mel and Stannis as they descend from their platform. John commands Marsh to break up the stockade and burn the dead. He asks John if he thinks the wildlings will keep faith. John says some will, not all, that they have cowards and weaklings just like the Watch. Marsh points out they're sworn to protect the realm, and John says once they're settled, the wildlings are part of our realm. We have seen the face of our real foe, a dead white face with bright blue eyes. The free folk have seen that face as well. Stannis is not wrong in this. We must make common calls with the wildlings. But Marsh is like, so why don't we lock them up over there then, on that side of the wall, and they'll fight the others from over there. He's like, it's really easy. John, <laughs> I got this. I thought this through. <laughs> Bowen analyzes that Mance's men had spent actually 10,000 arrows on them, yet only 100 barely made it up to the wall to attack. He's like, it's going to be so easy. We just got to, we're on top of the wall. We can keep them out. Tormund's men, they're mostly going to be women and elderly people and unable to battle like the first round of the free folk that we had to deal with. And like, it just, if we had sealed the gate, Bowen's like, then Donald Noy wouldn't have had to die so bravely. Damn, like deep cuts, Bowen. Right. John is worried, though, that sealing the gates means blinding them against rangings and, of course, what lies beyond the wall. I agree. In yeah. one sense, I, I think you could also argue, along with all this, there's a metaphor, right? If John wants to keep his options open, doors open, sealing everything up sacrifices some of that flexibility for supposed safety. And I guess that's kind of what happens now that I think about it in the last chapter. John doesn't want to close off all his doors, right? That's why he's not sending letters and telling people things. Anyways... But what I really don't get is why John doesn't just say, you know, like, Bowen, think this through a little more, right? They literally cannot stand against the others out there. I can see why you're like, yeah, they'll fight the others out there. We'll fight them from up here. No, our men, they were trained. They couldn't fucking do it on the fist of the first men. These starving, weakened people definitely can't. And the more of them that die, the more of them that can, like, attack the wall. They don't give a shit if you stab at them from the top of the wall. They're gonna keep coming. Because they're dead. It's pretty fucking straightforward. I don't know why John doesn't just doesn't just lay it out like this for everyone. He keeps, like, coming up with all these other reasons. I'm like, John, it's straightforward. Yeah. Marsh argues back, too, against this. And he's like, the last ranging, we lost a quarter of our men. We need to conserve our strength. He says his uncle used to say, take the high ground and win the battle. And no ground is higher than the wall. I don't John, think that's what your uncle meant, yeah, Bowen Marsh. All. Not at all. John <laughs> finalizes. He's like, we can't do that. Stannis is promising salvation through the gate to the wildlings. Marsh says there's word of him being too friendly to King Stannis. Oh, like sexy oh, rumor. Mm, episode 69. Um, <laughs> nice. Let alone the other rumors around camp. But John doesn't see any other option. That's a common thing with John lately. They don't have enough men to fight Stannis off and the wildlings, and he's their guest. They owe him. Marsh still thinks he's a rebel and he's doomed if the throne marks them all as traitors to his cause. 
John doesn't plan on choosing a side since Tywin's dead, killed by John's acquaintance Tyrion. Marsh thinks people are not fond of Stannis and most still see Tommen as Robert's son, even with the vicious rumors. Oh, Tommen. <sighs> Poor boy. Don't kill that boy either. John's retort to Marsh saying, though, like that people complain is he's like, yeah, well, folks complained about J.R. Mormont too. And I'm like, yes, John, true, valid argument. But also, here's another argument J.R. Mormont now dead by maybe yeah. the folks that complained about him. Hmm. John, put the things together. Yeah, this is like Marsh's last warning, right? Marsh isn't really the bad guy, bad guy. In a lot of this, believe it or not, like he's actually kind of the neutral zone. And I, I just like that the show translated him to that team. But Marsh is kind of more the last hope to stop the coalition against John from forming in full. He's trying to ambassador and he's trying to warn everyone or he's trying to warn John about what's coming to him. But John's blindly like, uh, this is really wise counsel, but I don't think there's any other way. So I'm just going to forge ahead. And Marsh is like, I'm telling you, make another way. Or again, John, hold bring everyone to a room explain this is what happens when the people die on the other side of the wall right anyway yeah like i agree with what you're saying about bowen marsh i still think like i don't know i don't love that he's hates the wildlings so much but you know as we see in a moment when everyone goes to eat, they're not eating in the common hall because it was burned by the wildlings. So they're eating in a cellar. And I'm like, I, I, I do get it. Like all of these people literally just fought very hard and lost friends, mm -hmm. literally fighting these people very, very recently. And all those wounds are very raw, literally and figuratively. And John expects everyone to integrate because he fucking said so. And I'm like, no, John, it takes a long-ass time for shit like this to work. Like, there's a lot of other examples from history, but instead I'm going to say, look at Pawnee and Eagleton. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, I think more than that, another another reference we can make from Parks and Rec is, uh, you know, that the Ice Town Clown... Oh. Ice Town costs Ice Clown his town crown. Oh my god. <laughs> Hashtag Jon Snow. That is the Jon Snow story, actually. Yeah, I know. You're right. Young and literally, in command. Also, Ice Town. Yes, an oh, Ice man. Town. Yes. He does love Game of Thrones. That character. I know. I know. It's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> John thanks Bowen for his counsel sincerely, and he asks him to burn the corpses and dismounts at the gate. Ed brings him a torch as he joins him in walking. It was a relief to see that horrid bird, my lord. Ed said, just last night I dreamt I was pissing off the wall when someone decided to give the horn a toot. Not that I'm complaining. It was better than my old dream, where Harma Dog's head was feeding me to her pigs. Harma's dead, John said. But not the pigs. The way they look at me, the way Slayer used to look at him. Not to say that the wildlings mean us harm, eh? We hacked their gods apart and made them burn the pieces, but we gave them onion soup. What's a god compared to a nice bowl of onion soup? I could do with one myself. If that's not a telling passage I about know. this entire chapter, I don't know what is. 
Damn. And it's true. What is a god compared to a nice bowl of onion soup? The people that burnt their gods, they did it for salvation, for food, to live, for sustenance. And Ed's pretty matter of fact. He really yeah. uh, says it how it is. You know, hey, sure, we killed their gods, but we gave them food. A bowl of soup. Ed's out yep. here with a straight fact. Straight fire, but not that fire. Oh, my God. John is thinking about the scent of food now. And he wishes his friends were there to share the company, not just to eat. He craves conversation with Sam, wine with Eamon, laughter with Grip and Toad. Grip. Grip. It's canon. I've been saying that canon. for like, I don't know. Well, weeks, we canonized months. it. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say a take. I don't think it's that hot of a take. John <laughs> did this to himself. No shit. He yeah. literally goes to the hall and he's like, I want all this. And then he gets to the hall and sees his friends. He's like, nope, guess I can't have it. Like, John, you can do these things. It's just you're choosing not to for the wrong reasons. There are good reasons not to. Yeah. But none of those are the reasons being supplied here. Yeah, he sent away his friends and now he's being like weird with the rest of them. So, yeah, John, he loves I think. I almost wonder, does John like making his own problems? I don't know. John is a messy bitch and he loves drama. <laughs> he does. Oh, <gasps> uh, John says, I'll take supper with my men for once. And it's boiled be beef and beets, as Ed informs him, because Dolores Ed apparently always knows what is cooking in the kitchen. And if that's <laughs> not a mood, that's not me, <laughs> then I don't know what is. The men are eating in the stone cellar below the armory, since the free folk burnt the common hall. And John comes in, he watches men play at tiles, and Gren is mocking the Lord of Light. John is like, hey, mocking another man's prayer is foul and dangerous. And Pip is like, if the Red God's offended, let him strike me down. But the tone is tense in the room, and everyone begins to bring their complaints about Melisandre to the forefront. John says he won't have bad blood between the parties, and Pip mocks John a little bit, saying a couple ridiculous things that all imply John is the big boss. I get it. And Gren tries to police Pip, apologizing for his actions to John and asks John to eat with them, but John says he cannot. John wanted nothing more. No, he had to tell himself. Those days are gone. The realization twisted in his belly like a knife. What does but it mean? <laughs> they had chosen him to rule. The wall was his and their lives were his as well. A lord may love the men that he commands, he could hear his father saying, but he cannot be a friend to them. One day he may need to sit in judgment on them or send them forth to die. Another day, the Lord Commander lied. Ed, best see to your supper. I have work to finish. Yeah. All right, John. It's happening. <laughs> he leaves the hall to the cold and sees Val gazing at the wall from her tower. She looks lonely, John thought. Lonely and lovely. John thinks that Val's resting bitch face isn't powerful enough because he says <laughs> that Val would turn heads anywhere and then compares her to Egret's beauty, which is more particular. And Val, though, is also a little more vicious and is not beloved by the men who have to watch her because she's always trying to escape. She's already tried three times and she's killed men in trying to do so. And I'm just saying, I want the Ariane and Val meet up. I'm listening. I'll subscribe to your newsletter. I, I, th I think that they have a lot to discuss about being locked in towers. Yeah, with their mouths. And attempting escapes. What? With their mouths. Um, oh. What? Episode 69. Nice. 
<laughs> Lonely and lovely and lethal, Jon Snow reflected. And I might have had her, her and Winterfell, and my lord father's name. Instead, he had chosen a black cloak and a wall of ice. Instead, he had chosen honor, a bastard's sort of honor. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the Egret and Val comparisons against Daenerys, right? Mm -hmm, you guys have been mm -hmm. here for that. Um, if you take this paragraph and put it in the context of the possible end Game of Thrones, interesting. Oh, end Game of Thrones. I mean, Daenerys is the lonely god, right? Daenerys is definitely lonely and lovely and lethal. Yes. I, I think that it's the lonely and the lovely. I, I guess, yes, the lethal, of course. But yeah. I, the lonely is the part that really strikes me about it that yes. very much makes me think of Daenerys. Because I think that they, what, got to it in, what, the last two episodes of the show? Yeah. But it's something that, as we see in the books, Daenerys has been wrestling with since literally book three. So maybe we should have been talking about this in the show since, like, I don't know, season three or four. But what do I know? <laughs> what? Do I know? Anyway. And the bastard sort of honor. Interesting line. Uh-huh. Yep, a bastard's honor. Uh, I am uh, the shield that guards the realms of men. And that must be more than a man's honor. Yeah. Because he had chosen honor and a bastard sort of honor, but we see that part of what weighs on him is, as you were talking about, the Lady Lannister stuff, like... It's a bastard sort of honor specifically because he's choosing this as opposed to taking Winterfell yeah. from his other siblings. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking about that and if he chooses, what, the Starks over Daenerys and that's how the end Game of Thrones, as you called it, <laughs> comes to be a thing. I don't know. Thinking yeah. too deep. No, no, for sure. He walks against the shadow of the wall and listens to the chains of the winch. He thinks he should be walking atop the wall and walks past the spot where Egret died, where Ghost had reappeared. He tastes blood in his mouth, which makes him realize Ghost must have killed that night as he thinks about it. And he rejects that thought, thinking he is a man, not a wolf. Well, well. What does it uh, mean? What does it mean? <laughs> He knocks at Clytus's door below the rookery, and Clytus invites him in for mulled wine. Clytus is old, but not that old, maybe 60 or so, and he seems young compared to Aemon. John drinks deeply to wash the taste of blood out of his mouth, and he talks about Mansa's death with Clytus, about Lightbringer and its flaming aura. They toast to Stannis's magical sword, and to Stannis, John thinks the wine is bitter, and Clytus tells him, his grace is not an easy man. Few are who wear a crown. Many good men have been bad kings, Maester Aemon used to say. And some bad men have been good kings. He would know. Aemon Targaryen had seen nine kings upon Damn. the throne. He had been a king's son, a king's brother, a king's uncle. Damn. Yeah. John tells Clytus he read the passage Aemon left him in the Jade Compendium about Azora High and Nisa Nisa. Lightbringer was tempered in Nisa Nisa's blood, and that he thrust the sword into a monster, and the monster's blood boiled and smoked and dribbled. John says it's too bad Stannis' sword isn't actually Lightbringer, basically. Uh, and he thanks Clytus for the wine, and off he and Ghost fuck. What? Off they fuck. 
Okay. Oh, fuck. God, Eliana. <laughs> fucking furry. You're the one who said it like that. I just wanted to have a brief Clytus appreciation moment. I don't think... I think Clytus, for obvious reasons, gets overshadowed by Maester Aemon. Maester Aemon is way older than Clytus, therefore more impressive because of that, as John points out. But Clytus is here providing some comfort, too, and I just want to point out that he's kind of chill, and I, for some reason, just get drawn to random-ass characters. John then passes the armory and goes to his room, hangs up his sword belt, and he works his hands out of the gloves to light the candles. And he can't sleep, so he decides to look at maps and reads a letter from Dennis Malister over and over again. Then he writes two more letters, one each to Cotter Pike and one to Dennis Malister, and sends even more men. But he feels like he can't seem to write the right thing, and everything just sucks. <laughs> the raven continues to watch him with its shrewd black eyes. My last friend, John thought ruefully. And I had best outlive you, or you'll eat my face as well. Ghost did not count. Ghost was closer than a friend. Ghost was part of him. John rose and climbed the steps to the narrow bed that had once been Donald Noy's. This is my lot, he realized as he undressed. From now until the end of my days. What does it mean, Eliana? What does it mean? All of this paragraph. There's so much goddamn ghost foreshadowing for yeah. John right now in ghosts. There's so much doom surrounding this. And of course, from now until the end of my days, too soon. <laughs> what is, soon. yeah. And the raven it's very eating soon. him. Yeah. The raven eating him. That's obviously the one that ate J.R. That's true. I do kind of wonder, like... Right? Like, is the bird actually going to eat a little bit of his face when he's dead? And then it'll be a scar in the way that, like, Lady Stoneheart comes back and she's a little bit decomposed, too. Maybe the scar was real, you know? I mean, uh, he already has the one scar. That's true. He's going to have a lot of scars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I'm going to just throw it out there, though, that you don't need to be a skin changer to feel like your dog is a part of you. No, you don't. You really don't. Anyway. Alright, well, that was a chapter. I'm, uh, I am happy at our choice to split these two chapters. Yeah. 69 will be just John 3. There's a lot of foreshadowing in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. Holy crap. It's like laden with it. It's a little heavy-handed. I'm kind of like, what are we going to talk about the whole rest of the book about the foreshadowing in these chapters? Because that's all there is. That's true. And I mean, it still catches everyone by surprise when it happens, right? Yeah. But it that's what makes a reread so rewarding. Absolutely. <laughs> that's what we well, tell ourselves. Well, guys, as always, thank you for listening to John 3 and A Dance with Dragons. Next week, we're going to be back with John 4. Woo, for episode 70. Not as nice. Yes. Not as nice. A little <laughs> less nice. And of course... Thanks for coming along with us. If you want to keep track of when all those episodes come out, be sure to subscribe to us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, or, you know, maybe you have something to say. Shoot us an email on girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can find us on Podbean, on Spotify, on Google Play, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Acast, and on Overcast, and on a lot of other podcasts, too, so... Whatever, there's a bunch of them. I don't know them all. 
There, yeah, there's a lot. Who knows what we're even on. But what we do know is what our Patreon episode is going to be this month. For October, Chloe and I are getting together to watch The Golden Compass, the other movie. I've actually never seen that movie before. So it'll be fun. Yeah, I told you I've never seen the movie. I didn't realize you hadn't seen it. Oh, shit, this is going to be great. Yeah, that's what I was was saying. We could do it as like a watch through because I've never seen it because uh, it looked bad. And I was like, I really liked the books that I read. And this seems not at all like that. In the same way that I have still never watched the Ella Enchanted movie because I loved that book, Ella Enchanted. I read it oh, till it too. fell apart. I read it over and over and over till it fell apart in my hands. And the movie looked like it was going to let me down. So <laughs> same well, with the Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, yeah. I refu- I'm never watching that. I would no, die. But I'm, I'm excited about the live action Netflix series, there's, I think, potential. Yeah. Yeah. Television will save us, I guess. We'll see. We'll see. Save our stories. Definitely tune into that Patreon episode. We will alert the press when it is out. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The press is going to just know. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thank you for listening, you guys. Episode 69. Goodbye. Nice. (laughs) Girls out. Out.